John chapter 4, beginning with verse 43, verses 43 and 44 actually provide us with a transition. John does this a lot as he moves from one event to another, um, not necessarily following any sort of chronology or uh, trying to create for us a detailed narrative of all the events. In fact, he goes on and eventually makes it very clear when he says that if all of the things that Jesus did and said were recorded, that the books of the world would be insufficient to contain it. And so that isn't the point. The point is to provide us with insight and understanding into the circumstances and situations of life that are going to not only reinforce his primary message, and that is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and also the message that faith in him is the only hope of eternal life. And so as John writes his gospel in order to accomplish these things, he is doing so to fix our eyes on Jesus above all else. But he does it in the context of everyday life. Verse 43 says, after the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Jesus returns to Galilee after the time that he had spent in Samaria. And we didn't give a detailed treatment of the Samaritan um, time. I, I, I gave a general description of it because of the nature of the messages and the Sundays and what was going on on Palm Sunday and then also on Easter Sunday, it's not as detailed as I probably would have done otherwise. Suffice it to say, though, that Jesus went into a place that was despised by the people that he is related to and most associated with, those who are the official children of God. He goes into a place where the officials don't love these people. In fact, they hate them. And Jesus ignores all that, crosses these boundaries, and ministers there not only to Samaritans, but to an outcast even among the Samaritans. And the woman that he interacts with eventually becomes his greatest herald, as she goes and testifies to her community, the community comes and they experience a profound transformation so that they even plead with him to remain. So he does, and this is the two days mentioned in verse 43, after the two days he spent with the Samaritans. Um, keep in mind, he performed no signs and wonders there. He simply told people what was going on in their own hearts. He revealed the nature of their sin. And he offered them hope and forgiveness. As a result, their declaration was, this is the Savior of the world. Think about that for a moment, because this is really significant. Jesus did no signs and wonders. He did no miracles or amazing things. He simply said, your sin is killing you. And convicted of their sin, they acknowledged and saw that he was indeed the Son of God. 
so much of what we do and what is involved in the whole world of, of what we think about as religious only serves to cloud the image of what is most important. And that is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, period. Now he returns to Galilee. There's an air of something other than true faith that seems to kind of permeate the atmosphere of what is said in these verses. John even reminds the reader that Jesus said that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. In spite of that, the Galileans welcomed Jesus. It says that they, they were anticipating his return, and upon that return, they were celebrating. But it wasn't because of who he is, but rather it was because of the things that they had seen him do. They weren't honoring him because they knew him to be the savior of the world. They were honoring him because of all of these signs. And it was where these signs were intended to point them to a deeper understanding of the kingdom of God. And that was on grand display, but they were missing it. It seemed that it only increased their appetite for more signs. Contrast between the Samaritan's faith and that of the crowds in Galilee is striking. One is genuine, heartfelt, leading to repentance and faith. The other is superficial and shallow, leading to an ever-growing distance from the true purpose of Christ's presence among them in the first place. In fact, the same crowds who are welcoming Jesus as he comes back into Galilee will be among those who populate the crowd in Jerusalem who cry for his crucifixion and revel over the shedding of his blood. To expand (laughs) this gulf between true and false faith... Jesus also encounters legalists. Don't you love the legalist? The legalists of the day have no care for such things as compassion, mercy, or even truth for that matter. They only care about whether or not Jesus follows the established rules. He can do what he wants as long as what he wants is within the boundaries of what we say. This group is content to abide the work and the words of Jesus as long as he doesn't contradict the limits of their preconceived expectations. How about you? You willing for God to do whatever he wants as long as he does it within the boundaries of what you expect? I'm good with that. You? Don't you hate it when God does stuff you didn't expect? Pushes you beyond what you want? Jesus exposes both the superficial followers and the legalistic opposers with two different events, both of them healing. One is of a child that is near death. The other is a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. The response of the superficial crowd completely misses the divine meaning conveyed in all of the miracles, which is the glory of God. The response of the legalistic crowd also misses the meaning in favor of angry opposition because Jesus stepped outside the boundaries of established practice. The only thing that both groups have in common, they only care about themselves. They care nothing for the glory of God or the welfare of others. As a result, the miracles that Jesus performs 
will lead the superficial, superficial group to abandon him and eventually turn on him. And the Bible teaches us that from this point forward, the legalistic crowd will do everything they can to kill, to kill him and oppose him. It seems that no matter who Jesus interacts with, the superficial bunch or the legalistic bunch, it seems that even when he does gracious miracles, healing of a child, healing of an old man, no matter what he does, it seems that they still are destined to turn on him. It proves that the old adage is true. No good deed goes unpunished. Look at verses 46 through 54, please. I forget to say that. I don't mean to be rude. Please. The more intense I become, the more rude I become. I'm sorry. Thank you. Verse 46, he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The story begins with an unknown official whose son is at the point of death due to illness. He's traveled for two days to get to where Jesus is. He had heard of the works of Jesus. And in this two-day journey, I'm sure his mind was filled with a sense of hope, but also dread and fear. What is being portrayed is that this man, we don't know his name, we don't know what his official title was, we don't know anything about him, we don't know his background, who he's related to or connected to, and we will never see him again. And yet what we do know beyond any measure of doubt is he's desperate. He loves his son, and he's desperate. But Jesus replies to his request with a stern rebuke, Interestingly, though, and easily missed is that it's not directed to the man alone. Maybe not at all. When he says you will only believe if you see signs and wonders, it's plural. He's not talking to the man. He's talking to the crowd. He's telling those who are gathered there as they eagerly perk up their ears and lift their eyebrows to see what miracle or wondrous sign Jesus Jesus will do at the request of this official. They're all wanting to know and waiting for the next show. And he says, you only believe when you see outward stuff. Too often, Christianity revolves solely around outward signs that either benefit the observer personally or provide some form of entertainment to dazzle and amaze. 
At the heart of such faith is nothing more than a superficial desire for personal amusement. It will soon pass. It will never satisfy. It cannot transform. And it does not contribute to the work of the kingdom. If it isn't provided in increasing measure, people grow weary, they grow bored, they grow indifferent, and then they grow apart. The Bible is constantly reminding us that there is no transformation in such things. Only a temporary sense of novelty that wears thin as people move on to the next popular trend. Verses 49 and 50, though, tell us that the man persisted. He did, not, he did not allow the words of Jesus to phase him, and that tells me that probably that wasn't why he was there, and they didn't even apply to him. He persists on behalf of his son, and Jesus recognizes the man's desire is different from the rest of the crowd, and he tells him, go, your son will live. Notice that there is no argument, there's no discussion, and without another word, the man turns. He has traveled two days, he's interacted with Jesus for 10 minutes, and he says, go, and he turns and he goes. This is, this is tough for me. Immediate obedience is hard. We want to pause and delay because we're trying to find a way out other than what we already know. We're trying to find a solution that maybe will satisfy or maybe just wait until the moment passes and the intensity dies down a little bit. He doesn't do any of that. He just goes. And what does he go with? He goes with nothing. As far as he knows, his son's already dead. But it says he believed. He believed. And so in whatever measure he was able to understand or believe, there was something that connected with him through the words of Jesus and the work that he was doing. And so the man departed immediately. As he journeyed home, it says his servants came to him. This was probably the next day, not the same one where Jesus told him to go. His servants met him and informed him that his son lived and was well. And he asked about the time and confirmed it was when Jesus told him that his son would live. And then it says he believed again. Does it mean he believed in addition to? It means that his faith was becoming a progressive movement that was leading to redemption, salvation, and understanding that this, (laughs) this isn't just a guy or a prophet. This is God. He believed. He believed in a way that was beyond even what he had done while in the presence of Jesus. Now he believed with a result that brought joy. He believed with a relief that let him free himself from the burden that he was bearing. It believed with a sense of commitment and conviction that now was starting to change who he was so that his desire to return was intensified, but not because of what might possibly be waiting, but rather because now what he knew was waiting. His belief became even more profound though. Because it says that when he arrived, he shared his faith with his whole household. That means not only his immediate family, it means all of those who would have worked in that household. Remember, he's an official, so he would have had a large group of servants, other people that worked for him or under him. And all of these would have been part of his household. He told everybody he was close to about Jesus. 
And it says all of them believe too. What an amazing statement. In the midst of the miracle, the crowd that clamored for a show got nothing but a rebuke. But the one person who came to Jesus, not for entertainment, not out of superficial faith, but out of a genuine need and desperation, realizing there was no one else that could do for him what he needed, that one person was transformed. First, his son received physical life. Then his household received eternal life. So what I'm telling us is that superficial faith is a terrible thing and it has been with us all along. It will remain until Jesus returns. It is something that we all struggle with to one degree or another and we get caught up in things that don't matter. And in the process, we miss those that do. That was what was, that's what was happening here. And it was setting the stage for what would eventually be the crucifixion. Now, is all of that under the control and purview of God? Well, everything is under the control and purview of God. So yes. But does that make our responsibility any less than it otherwise would be? No. You will find that no matter how long you ruminate on the principles of the doctrines, you will, you will come to a conclusion that is always inevitable. And that is that God is sovereign and absolutely in control of every single thing that is happening in the world at every given moment, moving all of creation inexorably toward its ultimate conclusion with the return of Christ and the destruction of evil and the new heaven and the new earth. That is a reality. But in the midst of it, just because God is sovereignly in control, it does not eliminate our own personal responsibility for sin. You say, well, that just doesn't seem fair. Well, that's why I said you're going to bump into it all throughout your life and you're either going to accept it by faith and accept the fact that you don't fully understand it or you won't. Superficial faith is clearly on display by the Galileans. What about the legalistic faith? Chapter 5. So after this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there, was, there, now there is by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water showed up. What is going on with this microphone? Any ideas back there? Cutting out, isn't it? I just put new batteries in it. I'm sorry, that was rude. Um, I apologize, thank you for your understanding. I'm trying. It's just really, really hard for me. (laughs) 
Y'all don't know. You just don't even know. It's, it's not the same for everybody, I'm telling you. The sick man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool and when the water is stirred and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. He answered them, the man who healed me, the man told me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I also am working. John provides a setting for the next event by telling the reader that Jesus went to Jerusalem for a feast day celebration. He doesn't say what the feast is. We don't know. Uh, It shows one thing for sure, that is that the feast itself is not mentioned because it wasn't important to what John was trying to share. The inspiration of the Spirit led us to understand that the point of the story has nothing to do with feast celebrations. They simply provided the context that brought everybody into the city in such numbers. Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda where many people are gathered hoping for healing from the waters of the pool. Interestingly, Jesus does not follow traditional expectations where a good Jew would avoid sick people, especially at a time of feast. And yet he goes to the people that are the outcast. He rather seeks out the suffering and the sad to offer help and hope. When you read this in the English Standard Version, it's a little confusing, especially if you happen to be a customary reader of King James, because there's a little piece left out of it in verse 4. And the reason for that is because uh, when King James was translated, we didn't have as old a manuscript as close to the originals. And it was deemed that the superstitious statement that was put in there probably was added later on. You see, there was a superstition in Jerusalem that said that When the waters of the pool of Bethesda were stirred by an angel, the first person in would be healed. Now, does that sound like how God works on a first-come, first-served basis? Does that sound like the sort of torturous and cruel deity that would say to all of the suffering and desperate of the world, I'm going to heal one of you, but the rest of you are going to stand by and watch or lay there and watch. It it makes no sense. So that's why it's not in there. It is referenced. uh, So regardless of what translation you're reading, it'll either be included or be referenced. Uh, I'm only saying it because somebody's going to come up and ask me later. And uh, so now you know why uh, it's not there. Um, don't let that in any way challenge your uh, understanding of the integrity of Scripture. In fact, if anything, it should increase it. 
Jesus singles out a man who the Bible says has been lame for 38 years. doesn't say why. doesn't say if he was 38 years old and they'd been this way. It doesn't say anything about him, just like the official that we don't know anything about. Everything about this whole thing is quite curious, but the meaning will become clear. The man doesn't say yes when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? What does he say? He complains about his illness, his loneliness, and his frustration. Further, the sense of his reply indicates his exasperation over being asked a stupid question. This man is not only dull of thinking, but he is obviously bitter in spirit and feels entitled to something that he doesn't have. He blames others for his problem. He doesn't have anyone to put him in the pool. And he seems to be the least likely person that Jesus would approach. Jesus says, get up, take your bed and walk. You know what I think he did that for? (laughs) My first thought was he did it just because the man was so irritating and he just wanted him out of there. That was my first thought. This is a terrible person. He, yes, he's got a, an, an awful affliction, and I understand that. But the reality is that regardless of the circumstances of life, if we are going to use those to justify our bitterness and our brokenness and our distance from truth, then we will always have an excuse, even if you're not lame for 38 years. The man goes, as he was instructed, takes his bed. You'll notice that the healing was complete. Not only was he able to walk, whatever atrophy had occurred in his body over 38 years was gone. It was instantaneous. He got up, he walked. No one helped him. He stood up on his own. He may have leapt when he came off of the ground. I don't know. But I know that his healing was utterly complete. And it came through a simple statement from the word of the Son of God. Most people in the world don't think of this as a miracle. They want miracles to be surrounded by emotion and all types of other outward manifestations. They want them to come after a lengthy and prolonged effort on the part of people But the power of Jesus over sin is something that is always present. And where do you think disease and death and all of the things that occur in between comes from? It comes from sin. We are sinful people. We live in a sinful world and we have these things. Jesus has overcome. So when he says to someone who is stricken with an illness for 38 years, get up and walk, There is no more illness to stand in his way. It's immediate when he says to us, there is now therefore no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, it's instant. It's immediate. John then points out in verses 9, the latter part, through verse 13, he points out that this was the Sabbath. And he just says it, and now this was the Sabbath. Because this is where the the water is about to hit the wheel. 
Uh, it sets up the next exchange. Strict adherence to the rules of the Sabbath were the very pinnacle of Jewish legalism. Any breach was considered a capital crime. In fact, there were 39 very specific rules that governed how to observe the Sabbath. Imagine what it would be like if I had to test every one of you every week with 39 different requirements to see whether or not you could measure up. How many of us could pass? Well, you'd have to cheat, wouldn't you? Or lie, because that's what legalism does. It turns us all into liars and cheaters. Try to project some sort of image that is external but not real. And so we go on living our lives appearing to be religious and faithful when in fact on the inside we're all corrupt and broken and scared. What is the deal? This was the Sabbath. They go to him and they say, what are you doing? You're breaking the law. You can't carry your bed. And he said, it's not my fault. The guy that healed me told me to pick up my bed and go. It's not, what, I didn't want to do it. I wanted to stay lame laying next to that ridiculous pool and waiting for the angel to stir it. But he said, hey, get up. So I got up. He said, take your bed. Don't leave it here. It smells bad. Take it and go. And he picked it up and he went. And they said, you can't do that. But now they don't care about him. Who told you? Who told you to pick up your bed? I don't know. I didn't get his name. He had blended back into the crown. You see, the Jews paid no attention to the fact that the man was well, only that he broke the law. They also cared little for prosecuting the healed man, but cared deeply about prosecuting the one who would dare to heal someone. The blindness of legalism consumes the vision of its victim so that truth is all but lost. D.A. Carson said, those who are most blind typically are the ones who think they see the best. (laughs) In verses 14 through 18, Jesus found the man and warned him to sin no more, that nothing worse would happen to you. Can't really know a great deal about all of this, except that it would be far worse for the man to return to a life of sinful disregard for the words of Jesus. What is the worst that is going to happen? Does it mean he's going to have a worse kind of illness? No, I don't think that's what it is at all. I think he's saying to him, if your life doesn't change and if you don't understand what has been done to you and believe by faith in the genuine power of God that is being manifested to you, then you're going to be lost. And when you die one day, you will face eternity in hell. And that, folks, is worse. I think that's what he was saying. The man confirms that Jesus is the one who healed him. And it says that this is why the Jews were persecuting him. Immediately after Jesus gives him this warning, what does he do? He runs off and tattles to the legalist. And he's doing so to deflect any responsibility from himself. It says that this is why they persecuted him. They hated him. Because he refused to abide by the regulations regarding the Sabbath. Jesus declared that God was working. When they challenged him and said, what do you mean doing this? Is the Father working? Well, yeah, the Father's always working. How do we know that? Because the universe would implode. And then he said the most critical words that really escalated the opposition. He said, my Father is working. 
He didn't say our father. He didn't say the father. He said my father. Now they hated Jesus, not only because he broke the Sabbath, but now he has blasphemed and has called himself the son of God. And from this point on, they will do everything they can to kill him. Superficial faith can't save you. It it, it can make you look religious to everybody else, but it can't save you. Um, It can even make you uh, popular. Superficial faith will usually be directly associated with whatever religious trends happen to be going on at the given time. Uh, And so superficial faith can, can... be fun, it can be exciting, it can be emotional, it can be intense, it can be, it can be part of a big gathering or crowd that will be powerful, but it can't save you because it's fixed on something other than Jesus. Legalistic faith can't save you either because it, it's, well, it's ridiculous for one thing. It makes you angry and bitter and judgmental and Uh, It causes you to fixate on rules and regulations, and it makes you either the kind of person who does everything that he can to appear religious, while at the same time does everything he can to cover the parts that he can't control. And the way we maintain that is we just accuse everybody else of being less religious than we are. And so nobody ever takes time to pay attention to us. Plus, if you can be judgmental and angry enough, nobody wants anything to do with you anyway. And they avoid you. I find myself in a position as I was studying this, and I shared it with some of the staff, of feeling just so frustrated with superficiality. And then at the then I become I become intensely angry with legalism. I hate legalism. (laughs) And then it dawned on me that both superficial faith and legalistic faith are part of all of us. There are times we are all superficial in our faith. And there are times that we are all legalistic. And that what Jesus was putting on display for those of us in 2023 was to give us a better understanding not of which group to oppose or call out or preach against, but what he was doing was showing us the very nature of every person and the danger that is associated with it that interferes with genuine faith that saves you and transforms you. I spent quite a bit of time with this, trying to really get a handle on it. And when I finally thought I had it, (laughs) then I realized that the bad guy was me. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound 
that saves a wretch like me.